without further ado, Mr. Grant E. Trotter and Sierra F. Graves. It's me again. I guess we're just gonna stand really far from each other. <laughs> All right, can you hear me? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, we're not very well prepared for this being Easter, but I do have some Easter-colored socks. <laughs> Hopefully that restores some kind of orthodoxy to our church. I got nothing. We're gonna to need to be closer so we can both see our notes. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yes. That's not good. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, here we go. So yeah, uh, the prompt we were given is uh, in what ways can people be too sensitive about race and how has pol political correctness harmed our ability to talk about race? Which is obviously not a very easy topic. And if you wanted to put something in your notes, you could just put like political correctness and sensitivity, and that'll get it. Or you can just not take notes because <laughs> it's Brad, you suck. You just have a lot of confidence right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, this is probably one of the most challenging sermons, and that's why no one volunteered for it, including us. We were volunteered <laughs> by someone else. <laughs> um, so yeah, one of the challenges is figuring out like what's in the scripture and what our spiritual truths are that we're trying to bring to this, and then trying to bring that into our culture is like, it's a long way off, I think a lot further, and it's hard to like, take a scripture and say, here's a scripture and here's point ABC from this. Um, so instead what we wanted to do was put some scriptures up and read them at the beginning and at the end to kind of book in our sermon, because they, they tie in, but it's not like a really direct tie in. So um, we'll read those and then we'll go into our sermon. I'm just gonna look this way. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. He'll give generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So we wanted to start off by each sharing some of our background and just confessing some sin that we have around the issue of race. Uh, so I grew up in Tyler, Texas, on like a wealthy white part of town. And to this day, I'm only familiar with a very small part of Tyler geographically. And uh, all through grade school and high school, I was on the basketball team, so I came in touch with a lot of black guys and... Uh, was like on good, friendly terms with him. And I, I, especially when I was younger, I just had this sense about myself that I was just kind of exceptional. Like if people would just be more like me, all these problems would go away. And since I was on good terms with some black guys and I just felt like, yeah, I don't have a problem with this. And I really diminished the issue. And then looking back, especially just like kind of through Facebook, I see that like our lives have taken very different paths and I wasn't like an exception to the problem. <laughs> And the problem was a lot deeper than I would have realized. Another thing is that like, um, my parents paid almost entirely for my college because I had a lot of money when I was in college. And that's something that like, a lot of people, that's a privilege that a lot of people don't have. 
And I have some shame about that, and I feel like I didn't earn what I have, it was given to me. Um, and a lot of my career opportunities spawned from being on the wealthy white part of town. Like I saw this guy in a coffee shop who was working on some stuff on his computer that looked cool, and then we ended up doing some contract jobs together, and I was able to build up a portfolio, and that's kind of how I got into the field that I'm in. And just thinking about it, I'm like, I wouldn't have been in touch with someone like that to get that career connection if I wasn't on that part of town. So just reflecting on my story, that's, those are some ways that I can see how being white has like shaped how I've gone through life. Um, and a couple things I wanted to confess, I, I've made the mistake of thinking that joking with minorities about race will like be well received and funny and bring us together. Um, and it's taken some of my friends from minorities saying, hey, I like give that kind of, those kind of comments a lot, I don't really like hearing that. For me to be like, oh, okay, my bad. Um, but yeah, I just kind of made assumptions about how that would be received and how to be kind of coached out of that. Uh, and also in a leadership position I was in a while ago, I had a tendency to kind of make assumptions about what minorities would want instead of like finding someone asking them. So those are, that's kind of some of my story and some of my uh, problems that I've had to work through with this. Okay, so my background is, um, my background. So I grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods. Um, I came from a small town in Aurora, which is in Ohio. Um, and in my, we had one elementary school, one middle school, one high school in the entire city. And in my middle school class, I was like one of 10 blacks out of like 400 students in this class. Aurora was a pretty wealthy area, but my family lived in an apartment. And so I took the bus and I didn't live in a house and blah, blah, doesn't matter. And so I grew up kind of thinking like, um, and then I moved to Texas, let me reverse that. So I moved to Texas my freshman year of high school and that was such a big culture shock. Like everything literally is bigger in Texas. Like that is so true. Um, and I was just like floored at how many different people there were and how big the houses were and how you have to drive literally everywhere. And um, so I came to Texas my freshman year of high school and I was just like, well, there's so many people here. And because I had grown up in predominantly white neighborhoods, I naturally gravitated to people that I was comfortable with, which was white people um, in my high school. And I was also in band and, you know, that's already a geeky thing. And then you add like, you know, a minority and a geeky thing and it just didn't go well. So a lot of people, a lot of black people thought I was better than them or called me bougie, you know, like, oh, you're too good to hang out with us. You don't hang out with the white kids. But the white kids didn't expect me as black. Like, oh, well, you're not really black. See, are you just like an Oreo? Or they would make these jokes and do all these different kind of things. I was like, yeah, but I still don't look like you do. And people don't look at me the way that they look at you. Um, and so my entire life, I felt really inferior to white people. I didn't feel pretty enough or smart enough or I didn't feel comfortable. And I didn't feel like that was accepted really in either kind of group because people were making fun of me over here and over here as well. But my mom and my parents, um, I had both parents in the house and I had two younger sisters and I grew up pretty middle class. And we talked a lot about race and we talked a lot about how I was different than blacks because I didn't live the way the typical narrative is of black families, like with having a single mom and um, someone being in jail. You know, the whole narrative and stereotypes of blacks in America, my parents made sure that I wasn't that stereotype. And so they talked a lot about against that. And so in some senses, my sense of race was inflated and not that I was I not that I transcended race but that my race wasn't a factor in my life at all I'm kind of growing up in high school or middle school and so I don't really think about it that much I got the jokes and I got all the 
whatever. But I was like, that doesn't affect me. It's like, and it was, I was the only person in my, black person in my AP classes and things like that. And so I was like, yeah, I, I get that. Like, I'm not like normal black people. I'm different than them. And so I kind of took that on and it almost gave me an air of superiority against black people. So then when I got to college, I um, really had to wrestle with a lot of race in my own experience and what that means in our society and our culture. Um, just kind of growing up, I didn't think about it. And then I got to college and I was kind of hit with, oh, like, I am black. <laughs> Not that I didn't know that I was black growing up. But I was like, oh, like, people look at my race and they see me as a black woman. They don't see me as anything else. That's what they see me at, at first. And so my, my sin was that I had you know, almost felt this air of like, well, I'm not really like other black people, but then coming to college and be like, no, people see me as another black person. They don't see me as anybody else. And so kind of having to fight through that and realizing like people are going to have their prejudices and their biases against me. And so how do I fight against that? And how can I, um, I don't know, you know, when it came to things like dating or things like my friendships and the jokes that came about, I was like, oh, this is a much bigger deal than I ever thought it was. And it was just, I just was fronted with a lot of myself and my self-identity and my experience when it came to college. Um, and so, yeah, and so this series has been really helpful because it's kind of helped me express a lot of those thoughts and feelings. And this topic is really hard because I, it's just really hard. So, um, Grant's talk about political correctness and the good things about political correctness first. So yeah, we definitely didn't want to just like rail on this idea of political correctness as if it doesn't have any value or helpfulness. Um, so one of the things that the idea of being politically correct helps us with is recognizing that other people have these very different experiences of life. Mm -hmm. And if we're not very mindful of that, we could say things that are deeply hurtful or inflammatory without even realizing it. Um, one analogy I've heard for the way that we have these different experiences is that it's kind of like snow. Like if you grew up near the equator and some small group of people that hasn't like traveled and someone came to you and tried to explain to you that snow, water and solid white flakes falls out of the sky, you would think they're crazy. And it's kind of funny, I heard that when missionaries went to some part of like Central Africa and were in that situation, like the, the people they were preaching to didn't believe them until some of them traveled and saw snow. And also, this, this is just kind of interesting, it's not that relevant, but when uh, missionaries were reaching the Eskimos, they talked about Jesus as the Lamb of God, and they just had no concept of what a lamb was, and they'd never seen him. And so then they called Jesus the seal of God, because apparently seals also have a connotation of like innocence, and so that's how they translated that. But well, those are different ways that people have these just vastly different experiences of reality. And there's a, a big gulf that we have to cover to get between that. And uh, so, yeah, political correctness helps us to be mindful of the fact that that's what we need to do. And if we're not mindful of that, we can uh, be very hurtful and counterproductive. Um, yeah, that's it. Um, so I'm going to talk about how it has harmed our ability. And I like one of the things that we had a hard time when we were talking about this was trying to pin down what it means to be exactly politically correct. Especially because the idea of political correctness is always changing in our society. And it's whatever is the hot button issue or whatever is going on. And so we both had different things that we found out about it. And I don't really want to go into it because it was complicated and confusing. And <laughs> I still don't really understand it. But anyway, so overall, I think the PC movement now, right, is is to what well, we kind of talked about a little bit, is kind of meet people where they're at and to not uh, cause inflammatory things. So a few ways that we have kind of thought about this um, as far as how it has harmed our ability is that harmful labels sometimes come too carelessly so people stay silent instead of saying anything for fear of being called 
racist, xenophobic, homophobic, or sexist. So in some ways, it's it has caused people to um, just slap labels on people without really recognizing what those labels can do. Um, and and on the other end of that, it's just sometimes because people or because someone disagrees with your opinion on a public policy regarding race, it doesn't make them a racist. And I think we have. So let me say all my thoughts, and then I'm just going to talk talk a little bit. Um, one of the things we talked about here was that people who often think differently than us are seen as outdated thinkers. They're seen as people that aren't on the same wavelength as we are, and so they're seen as outdated or ancient or that they're not progressive or that they don't care. And in that sense, it's harmed our ability because we've almost made it an unsafe place to talk about these things, especially when it comes to race. Um, we're not, people can't be honest about their thoughts. And it's not even that like the peop, the way that people are saying things, it's, it's not that they are those things, but when you're, we're so quick to call someone a racist because they disagree with my, so this is the example that I was gonna share. Um, sorry, Grant. So there's this example of, um, wait, that's in my, that's too soon. I jumped this, no, okay, rewind. <laughs> So there's this one example that I use. So, so do you guys remember when Fidel Castro died and Obama had tweeted about something and then Trump tweeted the same exact thing and um, Obama's tweet was like really like such good language and used a lot of like flowery words and it was just really like politically correct. He used a lot of words that like Fidel Castro wasn't a bad person, like whatever. And so he, he made it seem like yeah, like this was a tragic event, but we can move past it. We can kind of move on. And Trump just like could not have cared less what words he used. He was just like, yeah, Trump was a dictator. Yeah, Castro. Castro. <laughs> 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 okay, you know what I mean. Castro. <laughs> not Trump. Um, <laughs> uh, Castro was this really terrible person and treated people really poorly and really crappily. And I wish I could read it. I Maybe I will. But anyway, so it just showed a lot of like how Trump's response wasn't politically correct. But in some ways, I feel like um, I lost my train of thought. I feel like it's an example of how quick we are to judge people that maybe he really thought those things, and that's that's fine. But we're so quick to put a label on him, and we're so quick to discount his opinion as being a racist or being xenophobic. When it's like, no, Trump probably needs to talk to a real person from that country and get their experience and see what that's like. Um, and it's just kind of seeing people, oh, I'm losing my train of thought. I'm not following my notes. I'm so sorry. Um, and it's, it's, I feel like sometimes the PC movement can sugarcoat what people are really trying to say. And that doesn't help people move or change. Yeah, right. If it's being sugarcoated, it's not, you're not telling me what's really going on and what's happening. And the peace movement has harmed that and telling people, like, you can beat around the bush but not really get at the heart of the issue. And if that's the case, then the change doesn't happen right. if it's being sugarcoated. Um, and I think we talked a little bit about how there are horror stories about people losing their career over politically incorrect tweet or something, for better or for worse. And so that, that looms people's minds. It's, it's, it's just hard. And, and you've heard stories where people have tweeted something, like that woman tweeted about making a joke about HIV, getting HIV in Africa, and people just kind of lost their 
mind. And that is going to tie into joking here in a little bit, but I don't know. Um, yeah, so one thing, uh, trying to view people through the lens of like political correctness can kind of accidentally get us looking at externals again. Like you might see a black person and say, like if you haven't met them, you might just assume, oh, they've probably been through a lot of hardships and I need to be like very uh, mindful of that. But you're just like making assumptions on them about them based on their exterior and you haven't met them or talked to them yet. Um, so that's one, one way. Um. Think we're good on that section? Yeah, I think we're good with that section. Cool. <laughs> okay, you want to go to the next one? Yeah. Um, so, thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> so, uh, I wanted to just kind of like intentionally digress for a moment and talk about how we talk about politics and news in general and how we consume it. I think we need to be far more skeptical of the things we see. I think we need to recognize that news companies are competing with one another based on entertainment value. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, so the, we don't give them any incentive to produce like meticulous, carefully researched things that will broaden our horizons and stretch our attention span. So that's not what they're trying to do. <laughs> um, a lot of times they're trying to manufacture outrage for the purpose of generating ad revenue. And a big part of that is painting a caricature of the enemy and just trying to make the other side look stupid. And if we're not careful, we can just play right into that. Um, I think we should never get comfortable with a news source in such a way that we stop questioning it. Yeah. I think we need to ask, when we read something, we need to say, like, why do I, why does this resonate with me? Why do I like this so much? Or why do I hate that? Or what hopes or fears or desires is this playing on? What's their motivation for writing this? What are they trying to accomplish? I think too often the only question we're asking when we read news kind of things is, how does this make me feel? I think we need to be very skeptical of our own opinions and ideas about political issues. Um, I think we get our opinions by osmosis, just from hearing the same thing over and over, and not because we've really thought through them and thought about the merit of the ideas that we have. Um, I think we need to recognize that powerful political forces have always been vying for control over education and media and stuff like that, and the ideas that we have are largely the product of that. We need to rehash the ideas that we have and be very careful about them and not just say like, well, this matches whatever happens to me inside of me, and so I'm gonna repost it. I think it's only through hard and persistent work that we can honestly evaluate our opinions and uh, get to where we have opinions that are worth having. Uh, so yeah, that's that little digression. This analysis here is gonna talk about how people can be too sensitive about race. Yeah, because I'm the black one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, <laughs> we're both going to talk about it, okay, calm down. Um, <laughs> so in what ways can people be too sensitive about race? <laughs> so, of course, with this topic, we've been talking a lot about how to be more sensitive to race, right? So it seems kind of silly that we talk about, well, now can we be too sensitive about race? And I think it's just like this entire sermon series is something we've got to try to figure out and work through and discern, like, what God says about it. And it's really hard and really challenging. Um, but for it's uh, it's interesting. Um, in my experience, I don't know what that's. I'm gonna go down here. So, so I feel like one of the things I talked about with people when I talked about this sermon series with was um, one of the things that someone I had talked to mentioned was about how civil rights leaders back in the day, whenever they had to kind of deal with this issue, 
they took a lot of flack. I mean, they were beaten, they were arrested, they had to go through all these different kind of things. And they, it was just really hard, it was a hard time and they had to do a lot of really hard things. And fast forward to today, and I feel like our level of sensitivity has changed. We talk a lot about microaggressions and, and a lot about how someone makes a joke or a comment and we're like so quick to um, just blow up at them. And most of the time it's that we, not necessarily that we are being too, sen- well, yeah, we're being too sensitive, but that we need to pick and choose our battles. So let me give you an example. There was one time Ellen DeGeneres had posted a picture about um, Usain Bolt, and she had posted a picture with her riding on his back, saying this is how she's going to run her errands from now on. Now, she posted it because he was the fastest man in the world, not because he was a black man. But people assumed that because it was a black man and she was a white woman riding on his back, well, she's being racist. And I, in my mind, I'm like, we need to pick our battles. That had nothing to do with race, as much as it had to do with how fast he was, and I would use him too if I could piggyback on his ride. I'm like, all right, take me there. And so it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like we need to pick our battles, especially as minorities of what we're going to call out as racist or we're going to call out as like really kind of getting into people's lives and saying like, I don't like that. I think in that instance, we sometimes can, we can sometimes take things at, um, what am I trying to say? Like, that had nothing to do with his race as much as it had to do with his quickness. And so sometimes looking at the whole situation and looking at, is this really about my race or is this about something completely unrelated? Um, and it can, be, it can be hard, especially as a minority, having to navigate society when people look at me only as my race. I can be really quick to assume that it's about my race, and it's not. Most of the time, it might be, but most of the time, it might not be at all. You know? And so it's kind of like... We need to take a step back, and this is for minorities, obviously, but white people, you can attain to this, I guess. Um, You know, it's like taking a step back, looking at the situation and realizing, like, this has nothing to do with my race. This simply could be about literally anything else. But we always, we have a chip on our shoulder because of how society has looked at us in general. And so I totally, like, I can totally get that. But if we compare what the civil rights leaders had to go through during their time and we have to go through now, I think we can be pretty oversensitive when it comes to how... We navigate the world. It's like they they got beaten and they got arrested. And like, they just had to do it such crap. But someone talks about my hair and I'm offended. Like, really? Like, I get it. Like, I get it. Like, it's about my hair. Like, yeah, that's terrible. But I'm like, I'm not going to jail for someone making a comment to me. I'm not getting arrested because I'm walking down the street. Well, okay, that's a different story. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I, it's sometimes I think we can, we need to take a step back and, and look at the situation and say, is this about my race or is this about something else? And I'm not saying that race isn't important, but I'm saying, can we, we look at the situation and can we be too sensitive about race and what that looks like in our lives? Uh, so one thing, uh, you might have heard the term white fragility. A uh, definition of it is uh, white people sometimes have an extremely low threshold for enduring any discomfort uh, from changes, from challenges to our racial worldviews. I'll say that again. White fragility is when white people have extremely low thresholds for enduring any discomfort from challenges to our racial racial worldviews. Um, I think that's a real thing. Uh, to our racial worldviews. Um, so yeah, whenever this stuff comes up, I, I, it's kind of what we do with like like a theological issue that just gets really deep and over your head, and you just want to say like, "Well, God works in mysterious ways." You just kind of want to like run to a platitude to make you feel better about it very quickly, um, instead of enduring like a lengthy 
conversation about, I, I don't know, maybe I do need to repent of some things. And I don't know. I think we sometimes have a low uh, tolerance for racial conversations. So that's one way that I think white people can be too sensitive about race. Um, and then just a lot, of, well, a quick little caveat. I think sometimes I've, I, I work with people and sometimes they're talking about how they would never work for like a white, like a minority is like, I'll never work for a white man or a white woman. And I think that can be just as bad as when white people say they don't want to act with black people. Um, and I was watching this documentary one time that was about this guy, this black guy who decided to go talk to KKK members and it was really intense and you should watch it. It's really interesting. But at one point he goes and he talks to these uh, men in Baltimore and um, they're like activists over there and he's talking about, he's like, he very much thinks that what he's doing is right and good and like he's changing people's minds about the KKK and, and getting them to kind of um, repent of a lot of that sin and whatever like that. And so these black men have a really hard time with what he's doing. They see it, they see it as almost silly and not important. And in their minds, they think that if you were really helping the black movement, you'd be supporting black businesses and buying from local, oh, my, my watch is going off, I'm so sorry. Um, and like, almost this idea of like, we're only gonna shop from black people, we're only gonna get our clothes from black people, we're only gonna live in this black world. And I don't think that's okay. I think that is very much the opposite of what needs to happen. If change is gonna happen, we have to integrate, we have to talk to people, we have to, interact with each other and it's almost like a segregationist but for all blacks like that's the problem we were fighting against before <laughs> so it like didn't make any sense that's what they were arguing but it doesn't they were young it doesn't matter and so I think in that sense we can't be sensitive enough to only want to like shop or only want to do business or work with people of the same color as me because again that doesn't that doesn't help the cause that doesn't promote change or get people's um, ideas to think differently about black people or minorities or whatever that looks like. Um, and so that's all I wanted to add real quick. And so our last section is about joking. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, was this my part? Uh, yeah. There's no name next to it. Well, it's like inherited from the previous label. Okay, sure. Okay, so yeah, you're right. Okay, so racial joking. So this is an interesting topic, and Brad just kind of threw this at us, so we're going to do the best we can. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I mean, obviously joking is a good thing. Joking releases tension. It helps bring people together. Laughing is my favorite thing to do, and I feel so much closer to my friends when we can laugh at stupid stuff that I do. And <laughs> I've really enjoyed playing this summer with Sierra because I've been the most hilarious person in the world. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but like we like joking it really it's just like the sermon would be so dry if we didn't have any jokes and we didn't so sorry um, you know <laughs> oh I'm floundering okay so <laughs> so it's really good about joking in general is that it makes people feel happiness together and brings people closer it can help us weather difficulties and it can help us with weathering difficulties in our community um, but not all jokes do that. So particularly, I think people that are not of the minority status, or white people, um, need to be very careful about joking when it comes to racial minorities. Recognize that there's a lot of hurt associated with that topic. Um, and it's not to say that, and Grant's gonna go a little bit into this, but it's not to say that I don't think 
because you're a white person, you can never make a racial joke. What I don't know. Maybe that's blasphemous. I don't know. But it's it's just saying like know your audience, like know who you're talking to, um, and I'm gonna kind of jump a little bit. But it's it's um, for example, it's like I went to see my sister perform this uh, play on Friday night at the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. So good, everyone should go watch it. Although it's over now. So, um, <laughs> but next year. Um, so what? Oh, my sister's in high school. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. well, we're doing the same Are time. they really? Yeah. The 25th, they don't come. The spelling bee? Oh my gosh, I gotta go. That play is so good. Um, and anyway, so <laughs> so someone had made this joke in the room that uh, it was a little white kid, and he was like the orator of this. It, the premise is that these kids are in a spelling bee, and they're trying to like win the spelling bee and um this this or this orator the officiator is makes a joke because one of the words is mexican and the joke was like oh shoot what was it actually it was like yeah so it was like she's half mexican half white she's uh not mexican enough to be discriminated against but mexican enough to get a scholarship <laughs> like and it was just like the room was like, oh gosh. <laughs> they did not think it was funny. And I was like, that's a little funny. <laughs> but, it's be- but it's because it's like, it's- but imagine if that was a room full of Latinos and Hispanics. Like, how would that joke? It's like their experience plays into the joking that is a part of what's going on. And so I say that because it's just like, you, ha- you just have to know your audience. And I feel like sometimes. It's, uh, I think the reason why, particularly Rachel joking can be so sensitive about it. Um, one, I think oftentimes minorities are painted in a really negative light when it comes to racially joking. Um, whereas white people can be painted in like a much nicer light when it comes to joking. It's like, oh, well, they're not, they're dumb. Whereas blacks, they're going to jail. You know what I mean? It's like, those are two different things. And one's about actual things. One's about someone's intelligence. Like you, you tell me what's not funny. Um, and one of the things, and I brought the example that I don't think Grant liked, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, it was this example, I think, uh, I forget, I'm using it a lot, Ashley. But I think it was like someone went to a Mexican restaurant and there was a bunch of Asians cooking in the kitchen. And people were like, that, that doesn't really make sense because you go into a Mexican restaurant, who do you expect to be cooking the food? The Hispanics. And so it doesn't make any sense because it questions the authenticity of what's going on. Does that make sense? Like if I go into a restaurant, am I telling the story wrong, Vinette? Okay. <laughs> okay, so I got it wrong. <laughs> okay, so nor okay, so I got it wrong. So it was an Asian restaurant with Mexicans cooking. But either way, I'm que- it's questioned because <laughs> I'm. <laughs> okay, you guys, just bear with me. Okay. But it questions the authenticity of what's going on there. It's like that person is not a part of my culture. They probably learned the food, but they didn't grow up around the food. They don't know how, they don't know the nuances of like how that food is made or how that culture appreciates that food. Does that make sense? Like the authenticity is questioned when I go into the restaurant because I'm like, you don't know. Like, and not that you can't appreciate the food, but if you're not a part of that culture, it doesn't really make sense that you would make money off of it, I guess. That's a bad example, but just, when it comes to joking, that's what it is. It's like, when you make a joke, you, can you, is that better? When you make a joke that's about a minority, 
you don't understand the authenticity of that situation. You don't, not a, you're not a part of that culture or part of that. Um, you're not a part of that. And so particularly when it comes to like, like my family and my race, like we joke a lot about the things that we have to deal with on a daily basis, you know, like whatever. And when a person jokes about that, but they don't understand where that's coming from, then it just, it's kind of, it's kind of hurtful. And it's kind of like, you're not a part of a culture, but it, yeah. Um, I'm going to stop talking. Okay, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, I think uh, sometimes white people, myself included, can assume that, like, this idea of, like, oh, we're close enough that we can joke about race now. And I think sometimes we assume that that's the case, um, but it's not really. And I've had a friend who challenged me on that, like, listen to me make those kind of comments for a long time. None of it was, like, based on racial stereotypes or anything, just dumb comments that are just stupid, like a lot of my humor, if you know me. But, um, Amen. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just don't assume that it's going to be well received and funny and bring you closer together. You should ask. Um, uh, so when we were first talking about this, well, hmm. <laughs> you can tell this is a lot of our, our talking wit. It's just like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. So I ended up with, um, I was at like a wedding and I was with some people that are outside of our community and. Um, they were of minority races and so I was like hey so is it possible for a white person to make a joke about race in a way that is like funny and well received and that strengthens the relationship and they all thought like yes under the right circumstances and the right circumstances are like they know me they know my family they, they like met the majority of my family they know what it's like for me to be Asian and we've talked about it and there's like a established understanding and respect there then it's possible. But prior to that, um, just be really, really careful and don't make assumptions that it's welcome or helpful. Anything else? Uh, no. Um, I guess... <laughs> um, sorry. So, I mean, this, guys, this is just really hard to talk about. It was a really challenging topic, and it's something that we are not experts on, and we had a really, I mean, really hard time trying to, like, figure out what to say but ultimately what this whole entire series has been about is just meeting people where they're at and kind of looking into people and seeing like media is really easy to construe people and there are fa there are people behind the facts that are spitted out to people and just having a conversation and and jokes aside like you know it's like I don't know I've really had a good time talking about this and I think it's been really good and that's all we got yeah so I'll uh, read those same scriptures again, but after each one, uh, we'll just pause and reflect on it. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, Ephesians 4, 1 through 5. So, yeah, I'll just read it, and then we'll sit in silence for about a minute. Just make sure that's clear, and I'll do that with all three of them. So, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk in a worthy, and, and uh, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. 
that's what we got. And I'm not sure what comes next, but we're going to go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.